Hey everyone, it's Luke. We have officially entered September. 2021 is the fastest moving year of my life to this point. It's back to school time. Kids are either, you know, already back in the classroom or they will be soon. Do not try to shop anywhere right now. There's nothing on the shelves to buy. But of course, this is not a normal school year. It will probably not become a normal school year at any point this year. Not only is the pandemic not over, in some places it is reaching new peaks of hospitalization, misery, despair increasingly. And with many kids not eligible to receive the vaccine, there's a lot weighing on people's minds. Parents, kids, teachers, everyone. It's enough to make a person want to seek help from a mental health professional, but there's a hitch there too. It's extremely hard to find a therapist if you don't already have one. These are just a few of the things that our... I, well, I almost said guest. Our substitute co-host predicted back in November. We'll get to that in a second. But for all the reasons we mentioned above, a few weeks ago, friend of the pod, Meg curtin Bear, a psychotherapist here in Spokane, reached out to Range HQ about hosting a community conversation about a second year of COVID school and how people are coping with that reality or failing to cope in some cases. So for the range heads who remember all the way back to November, last November, we had Meg on for a similar conversation with eight months of restrictions in the rear view and the holidays looming. Uh, she talked us through what was, you know, some pretty understandable anxiety around how do we be in community with each other uh, during a pandemic. I feel like I just did my Dr. Ian Malcolm voice. I'm, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. In that episode, she predicted, among other things, a mental health crisis following on the heels of a public health crisis and also a shortage of therapists community-wide, nationwide. That has also turned out to be true. So we figured, hey, if one therapist can be that smart, that prescient, why not have three? This week, I'm going to step completely out of the way and let Meg host a conversation with two fellow therapists, Maggie Rowe, a clinical social worker and certified child life specialist, and Ingrid Price, a licensed medical health counselor and child mental health specialist. The conversation gets brutal. Content warning here, there are discussions about suicidal ideation among kids, tweens, and teens. It does not sugarcoat how hard this is and will continue to be. Still, I also found it reassuring. There are lots of parents trying really hard to make these years as good as possible for their kids, and a lot of professionals like Meg, Ingrid, and Maggie helping kids and parents both navigate what are completely uncharted waters. This is the first of a few conversations we're going to be working on. More details soon on that, but consider this sort of the pilot episode. Before we jump in, lastly, as always, if you like Range, you can support us by going to rangemedia.co slash subscribe. That's rangemedia.co slash subscribe. We work to bring news, conversations, and analysis that are vital to not just navigating our world, but also making it better. A core part of our mission is to keep this content free for everyone always. And in order to do that, we need people who can afford to pay for this content to do so. So check it out, rangemedia.co slash subscribe. You can also always email me, luke at rangemedia.co. We really appreciate the feedback. All right, this conversation is a full hour. So I'm going to step aside and let them get to it. Meg Curtin Ray Bear hosting Ingrid Price and Maggie Rowe. Coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. 
March 13th, 2020, we began our first day of quarantine. And at the start of the pandemic at home, I was you know, sitting there just thinking about kind of how we move forward and getting ready to do all the work that we had to do. And I had this ambitious idea that we get a podcast started because I thought, you know, we're all in this together. What do, we, what do we do to promote well-being for the community at large? And I think I kind of knew or felt like there are going to be a lot of things that we all experience together. And we called it the Well Together Podcast, and we got a few scratchy, rough episodes out, you know, very DIY. We were DIYing, uh, which is a thing right now with the mm-hmm. pandemic, so I, I'm feeling good about that. Um, and then the need to conserve resources became really obvious to me as a mental health provider, as a parent of kids in this pandemic. And so, well, we, we paused. And lately I've noticed I've been pondering this question of, is there really anyone on our planet who has not in some way been adversely affected by this, this pandemic that we're surviving? And no matter how I play with it, think about it, I, I can't think of someone who gets to say yes, I've not been impacted. There's the reality of the virus, the pathway that it's taken through our lives, how politicized it's become, the false information that's out there, um, the ever-changing information, and we have to navigate that. And alongside of us, our kids are doing the same thing. And so part of what was really important to me about coming back to the table and having conversations as therapists was this that there are these moments I've noticed throughout the pandemic where there are big issues on the table that we as mental health providers can't address one by one, can't work fast enough. There aren't enough of us. And so today is about trying to relaunch these conversations in a different venue, not so DIY, and start talking about our community well-being again. So we're here today to talk about teens, the pandemic, what we're seeing, and maybe get a little information out to our community about how do we care for our kiddos as they make this big transition back to full-time, in-person, school, three feet apart, regular classes, but with masks on in an ever-changing world. I'm here today with Ingrid Price, LMHC of Core Counseling, and Maggie Rowe, LICSW of Wellness Therapies. I'm Meg curtin Raybear, psychotherapist and co-owner of Wellness Therapies, and I want to thank you both for chatting with me today and talking about teens and the pandemic. Yes, thank you for having us. I'm very excited. Yeah, thanks, Meg. Excited to be here. Will you um, both, and Ingrid, I'll start with you, just take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about who you are and, and your work with kids in general? Yes, of course. Um, so my name is Ingrid Price. I am a licensed mental health counselor. I'm also a child mental health specialist with core counseling. Um, And I spend most of my caseload working with um, young kids up to adolescence and then their parents. Kind of a mixed bag, but um, I've done a lot more adolescent work than I have in past years because the need is so great. You know, I could go on and on (laughs) about what it is. I'm also a mom of two young kids. So it's been a balancing act at best. 
you know, luckily I have a pretty good support system. But what I've realized is that, you know, years of working with adolescents and coming up with really good coping strategies, um, how to get them out, how to get them like, you know, fighting these social anxiety and school anxiety. And then now I'm like, oh, you can't do any of that stuff. Right. All that stuff that has worked in the past is gone. And then a lot of what I've noticed is the identity of these kids, especially adolescents that have played sports, their entire life is tied into that identity. They've been working really hard. And as a, you know, I was a, a collegiate athlete. I can't imagine not having that identity. I mean, I stressed with that in my 20s. They're dealing with it when they're 16. So the loss, and then all of a sudden they're like thrust into this existential crisis <laughs> at a teenage you know, age, which they're already not prepared to handle because, you know, I can't handle that at, <laughs> in my 30s. So, um, yeah, it's been really challenging because the things that have worked in the past aren't an option. And so they're stuck at home and their autonomy is gone. Um, they're fighting with their family. The parents are absolutely burnt out. They have zero resources to help them. And if they ask for help, they feel um, almost selfish and negligent because maybe their mom helped them, but now they can't put their mom at risk. So they're doing it all alone, and it's pretty, pretty terrible. Yeah, that's a good point. I think we are definitely seeing a lot of kids who feel very alone, and you know, it looks like a lot of different things for a lot of kids, and I think that's something I want to make sure we really put out there is feeling alone, feeling lonely, it looks different in different kids. You could be surrounded by a whole bunch of people and be lonely. We've talked about that before. But before we get into the meat of things, Maggie, just tell us a little bit about you and kind of what you're seeing in the population you work with. So yeah, thanks, Meg. My name is Maggie Rowe. I'm a clinical social worker, and I'm also a certified child life specialist. And that part of my background comes from my work in children's hospitals, I'm watching kids navigate medical trauma. So in my current private practice at Wellness Therapies, I work a lot with kids, a lot with teens, and especially the tween population. So those kids that are 11 and 12 and just jumping into middle school, which seems like a particularly horrible transition <laughs> that is happening, especially this fall of 2021. So what I'm seeing um, a lot of is just what you were touching on, Meg, is that deep loneliness of kids. And I see a lot of what I call um, kids being a room gremlin, where they are home, but they are in their rooms constantly. And so I ask all my tweens and teens, are you being a room gremlin? Like, what's going on? Are you only coming out for food and bathroom? Like, what, what is going on with that? Um, but I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of isolation, a lot of loneliness, and a lot of just missed opportunities for connection because kids are coping in that way of being room gremlins. Um, like the things that are the most engaging for them, perhaps, like virtual reality. All these VR video games are huge for the tween boys that I'm seeing right now. Um, so these kids can get really lost in some of these games and just not come out. And Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm seeing a lot of kids like looking for that social reward in lots of different places where they might not have looked before or like really dove into and escaped and can't come back out. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of teens also dabbling more with drugs and alcohol, um, kind of right under their parents' noses without them being aware, um, trying more intense drugs for the first time, just like, hey, I'm just going to drop some acid at home and see how it goes. At much earlier ages. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's these kids and teens and tweens, they're really looking for that social reward that used to be there that just isn't. Mm -hmm. So uh, to Ingrid's point of there was all this social connection in sports and this goal-directed activity and like all these amazing rewards from a sense of accomplishment and athleticism and things like that. A lot of those opportunities just dissipated. And now where do kids get that reward? Right. So we're seeing a lot more maladaptive coping skills, um, a lot of dabbling and cutting mm -hmm. to see how that goes to work on um, just combat that numbness that's there from lack of connection. And then just also a lot of like, how do I put this like a failed social attempt through social media? Lots of bad interactions on Snapchat and texting and kids like really trying to connect with others. But like, as we all know, tone in an email <laughs> can be a nightmare. <laughs> so all the time and, and these kids are navigating it so young, like, but then their friend will then screenshot their Snapchat and or their text and send it to somebody else and say, hey, wasn't this person being terrible? And then the other, yeah, they were. Let's block them on everything so there's this huge blocking culture too so cancel culture it's cancel culture for <laughs> tweens and teens and it's brutal out there right so. i think we we talk about kind of what was and then also what is about to be right because maggie what you're describing i think is particularly of interest because that was happening at a time when there is no reconnection this was happening to our kids when they are in their bat caves. That's what we called it <laughs> in our house. Um, you know, and so there's no going to school and having some casual, unplanned social interaction. Write that mm. social media piece, you know, naturally. No, the, the, the piece that happens at home stays at home, but then you're not going anywhere. And then the other thing I've noticed, because I work more at this point in my career with the parents and the families is that what I think was kind of unexpected when we got started is we, we had our kids at home, but we also had our families at home and they're trying to work. And so if your kid is quiet and in their space, you're able to get your work done. And there's a sort of a relief to that. And parents, it's not really, I mean, we got a lot of jobs as parents, right? Mm -hmm. But our kids' communities, they serve an incredibly important role. And I think... I'd love for both of you to, to speak maybe a little bit to how have you seen the pandemic affect kids' social and emotional development and well-being? And also, how do you think this next phase affects everything? Yeah, of course. I think that um, when, I, when I think of the direct impact on the social-emotional piece for these tweens and um, is an increased fear of multiple things, fear of fitting in, you know, mm -hmm. fear of missing out, <laughs> the FOMO, mm -hmm. right? But also the fear that something bad is going to happen to their loved ones. 
And with my high anxious, especially the school anxiety and social anxiety, they're terrified of their moms or dads even leaving the home. They've now gotten to the point where something bad is going to happen when you exit the home. The reality is you can't, you know, you're like, no, nothing's, you know, let's, let's use some questioning. What's the realistic expectation here? But then they're watching the news and they're like, look at all the people dying. Right. So they're going to leave here and they're going to die. And breaking that as a therapist, when before it was like, that is not, you know, Mm. (laughs) come on, let's, let's reevaluate the, you know, the reality of that happening. And now we're trying to, we're almost counteracting the news and you don't want to do that. So as therapists, we're in this very awkward situation where we're trying to navigate, you know, the truth of, or the reality is we're in a pandemic and yes, you know, it's pretty scary, but your mom still has to leave to go to the grocery store. And so there's this separation anxiety that I'm seeing a lot with, Mm. um, a lot more with the tween girls that I've noticed in the past. And then with my tween boys, they're just completely disconnecting at a much earlier age than Mm. before. So maybe they were showing some autonomy at 16, you know, like kind of pushing boundaries. Now they're doing it at 10 and 11 and they're, they're needing so much more of that friendship um, falling asleep with FaceTime. They have to be on the FaceTime with a friend mm-hmm. to fall asleep. And then the parents are like, well, why are you on your screen 16 hours a day? And you're like, well, what would they be doing otherwise? Right, that's what Maggie was talking about, yeah. the VR games, mm-hmm. the, the video games, all of that. Yeah, it's such an interesting um, thing when you think about developmental progress and like what are teens supposed to be doing? Like they're supposed to be individuating from their parents, meaning like they're finding more validation from their peer and social group um, rather than their parents or like craving that validation, I suppose, from their their peer group. And when that's missing, like, are these kids like a little less independent? I mean, sometimes I think with, with the, again, like those highly anxious kids that you were talking about, like not just the like, I'm worried about a test coming up or I'm, uh, I hope I don't biff it in the soccer game, but like real serious anxiety that, that is like, rising to a clinical level that keeps kids um, stuck, mm-hmm. like keeps them from doing things. I definitely have seen like that individuation track just really kind of halting. And some kids like just really like they don't even want to come to therapy without their parent mm-hmm. or they want their parent present in telehealth with them um, for five, six, seven sessions where I'm like, okay, like let's, let's really, hmm, mom and dad, <laughs> like let's, let's go. Uh, but, <laughs> but then on the flip side, I do see like so many kids, like we were saying before, like they're becoming independent or, or maybe just alone, like navigating this right. from, so much younger ages and I don't think that's great either (laughs) and that's what makes our job as parents impossible no and and then you know as I'm listening to you two kind of two different things are formulating in my brain one is that from my perspective that part of what happens for our kids through you know early adolescence to later adolescence is that the exposure they have to their school and sort of social groups and and how it grows, right? You know, your middle schooler might be busy, but your high schooler is busy, right? And that whole process, it exposes them to stressors. Sure, mm-hmm. every kid, right? Right. But those stressors in the grand scheme of things, they're proportionate. Yes. That's what, Ingrid, you were kind of alluding yes. to. And now what's what I'm seeing is that that's changed. And so 
you know, as therapists, do we always see the kids who are struggling the most? Yes. But I think part of what brought me to want us to sit down is that as therapists, what we are seeing is that that is no longer the case, that we are seeing kids who weren't on people's radar as having mental health struggles, right. who are now on people's radar. Families that are saying, my kid has texted me, they won't go to school. My kid has told me they won't go into a public bathroom. So they'll go to school, but they're not going to use the bathroom the whole day. And we could talk about the clinical issues there for the rest of the, this time, right? And so that's one thing I really want our community to understand, that as we transition, how do we help our kids understand that the stressors they're dealing with are bigger? It's doable, but we have to work together to support that in a different way, right? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. like Maggie, to your piece, are some of our kids struggling with attachment right now? That fear. I've also heard kids who are afraid to, you know, parents are like, go, go, go. And the kid's like, no, no, that's, I'm not supposed to, you know, I'm okay staying at home. And then the parents learn, well, the kid was afraid that they would come home and bring a deadly virus into our house and kill us. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, this isn't the first time as human beings, we have experienced this. We have Plenty of history to show that we survive, but I think the big difference from my perspective is we are connected, and, you know, Maggie, to your point, in a very different way with social media. And so moving forward, what do we expect to see for kids? Are they all going to transition the same way? Are some of them going to be, you know, look like they're thriving? And then what do we tell the kids who don't look like they're thriving? I mean, I don't know about you, but... I, I would say that most of my teenagers did most of their classwork with the video off. Oh, yes. For yeah. Zoom, right? They're yep. like, no, they don't need to see me. And so I can't imagine for the teachers as well, like not seeing any kind of feedback from these faces. Mm -hmm. And is the material being delivered? And so we have a, I feel like we have a year of these kids that are just Googling the answers as they come and not really taking, which is what I would do. That's a survival skill. Right. But they don't, they haven't processed any of the information. They don't have any of kind of the natural or logical consequences that happen in school if you're not paying attention because they have alternative modes of information gathering. So I think that is going to be a big thing, a big thing in these schools going back to in-person learning is all of a sudden they're like, well, you should have learned this last year. I mean, it was in the, it was in the curriculum. And these kids are like, well, that, that means nothing to me because... Right. Right? None of it saddened. Oh, yeah. This transition to school, I'm like, can we all just take like a collective deep breath for these kids that are just about to go back next week? Because I am freaking out for them. <laughs> like yeah. after I do need to take a deep breath <laughs> because it's so intense. It's so intense. I have so many kids that they just they didn't do a darn thing. They had straight F's and then the end of semester was coming or the end of the quarter or whatever it was. And then they would stay up for three nights in a row, do everything and be like, I got a 4.0. <laughs> I'd be like, for reals? <laughs> like, okay. Like I thought that was some very like trauma-informed teaching practices that these kids were struggling with engagement on this level, that um, having to turn on your video stream was just unbearably awful. Like the kids could not get it together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some creative teachers, they gave rewards. They would like mail candy to kids who like turned their camera on. All these but, teachers, I feel like they need extra 
love and support as well. Oh, can we give them a deep breath <laughs> yes, and like, yeah. send them some totally. love as well? But it seems like every kid is going into this school. You're feeling like they're brand new. Like they have no friends, maybe one if they're lucky. I've told so many kids, if you've got one friend that's got your back, you are good. You are Mm -hmm. good to go. But some of them just don't have that either. Mm -mm. And so I feel like everybody's going and feeling brand new. Some of them are brand new, like they're transitioning middle school or high school, or they got so disconnected from their peer group or so disconnected from their school community that they are just going to a different school, like Here's just something that makes more sense to me. Like, I'm just, whatever, I'm picking up somewhere else. And so all of us adults know it's hard to be the new kid. It's really hard. And now we've got thousands of, quote, new kids, mm-hmm. unquote. So this this transition is going to be hard. And I really hope that parents can give their kids as much grace as they can. But, you know, as parents, we are also very exhausted from all of our transitions that we've done Um from all the ways that our workplaces have been changed and every new routine we've had to do. And it's, it's hard to be really present with your kid, especially when they're a room gremlin and you can't get them out. <laughs> so it's hard. Yeah, and you're exhausted. You're like, yeah. I mean, if you want to stay in there, I'll just go and be in my own. I'll go to my own room and be my own room gremlin. Yes. I wish we had that opportunity. Right. Right. Yeah. We'll just push pause on the whole thing. I mean, that's the thing, right? You can't slow the train. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think back to the very beginning of things and conversations where the, the big question from parents is, is is there the possibility of exposing my kid to too much mm-hmm. TV? Do you remember like mm. before we went back to school and, you know, is it okay if my kid is just plugged in and, and saying, sure, this is, you know, we're just surviving. Don't, don't judge yourself. Mm-hmm. Now that we have some space and, you know, we all love hindsight. As therapists, we love when people <laughs> use hindsight because 2020 and that's, just not the way the world actually works, right? right? It's it's not perfect. And But looking back, can we reflect on the fact that this piece matters? Absolutely. I mean, even as adults, I feel like we disassociate. We're, we're checking out when we pick up our screen, you know? And I mean, if you look at all the research early on for those rupture and repair moments for the zero to three age group, right? But the same thing happens in those ruptures when we disconnect, Mm -hmm. but we need it, you know? And so then I'm staring, you know, me personally, I'm looking at my phone and then I'm upset that my kids are on their tablet. And I'm like, well, I'm doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm surviving too. I need a minute. I can't be present all the time. And then the guilt starts to kick in and the shame and I'm, I should be better and look at the other moms doing all the fun things with their kids and engaging them. And I'm like, where did they have the energy? (laughs) It's just, it's a constant battle of kind of that martyr moment as a parent. And um, the parents I'm working with, I'm trying to, you know, we have to break this perfect parenting. We have to break this, Mm -hmm. um, this cycle of looking at social media and seeing these other parents do these things and, and then judging our own parenting and, and really taking back that control and maybe turning it off, <laughs> taking a break. Who knows? Right. We need, have you ever seen the the? Um, I use a lot of metaphors in therapy all the time. And I, as you were talking, I just had this image form in my mind of you know the the Pinterest and the Instagram pictures of the perfect cake, and then how mm. people post their own version. <laughs> That's what I feel like you're describing. Like, yes. okay, here's perfect parenting, yeah. and oh, there's my snapshot yeah. of reality. Look, it does not. I mean, you know, it's a cake. But yeah. that you stop there, right? Like, I made it's, a cake. See? It's edible, right? and that's what you're going to get from well, me. Well, maybe. A little dry. <laughs> Debatable. Um, okay, so 
in all of this, we are definitely seeing an increased level of anxiety and depression. I mean, the stats are showing that. Uh, nationwide surveys are showing that three in 14 girls are reporting increased anxiety, and it's about one in, I think, five boys. I'm not looking at my notes, but that's what I remember reading, something to that effect, but overall an increase. Parents are worried. We know uh, from the research and the science that anxiety is in a way contagious, right? The more it, The more we feel anxiety as an individual, the more the people around us read our, I mean, nonverbal cues, right? They're mm-hmm. huge. So how we're holding ourselves. And we're about to put all these kids in with, with varying degrees, because we're going to have some kids for whom, uh, for whatever reason, you know, I kind of want to stay away from the political nature of things, because I think that's been really hard on our kids, actually, mm-hmm. is trying to navigate that. Mm-hmm. But we are going to have all these different sort of social and political views and these different journeys through this process, coming together in one place. And Maggie, you mentioned, actually, I think maybe you both did, seeing kids really trying to Mm self-soothe in these, we've talked about the the social media aspect of things, but there are other ways to self-soothe that are not healthy. And so if you're a parent listening, you know, what do you, what do parents need to know, I think, about what, what we're seeing with regard to kids experimenting and if they catch that, how to handle it. And I'll, I'll add one more caveat in a climate where it's really hard to find a therapist right now. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you want to take this? I'll go first. If <laughs> you know, want me to, go for you it. want me to, okay. Yeah. Ooh. Cause it's big. It's a big She's one, right? Ideas. Here we go. Listen up. <laughs> you know, um, I don't have teenagers, so I feel like I'm talking from a place, um, where I'm trying to see myself in their shoes, the parent and the child. Right. Um, and what I've been telling parents a lot is that we have to learn some um, almost empathetic responses. It's almost that you're teaching them reflective listening um, in these moments and, and, and that, that equipoise so that don't show your state of mind. You are freaking out because you just saw cut marks all up and down your, yeah. your teenager's arms. And the first thing that you're thinking is she's trying to kill herself. And then you want to admit her to the hospital or calling crisis line after crisis line and nobody's answering. And the hospital's like, that's not, that's not a crisis. And in your mind it is, you know, cause it is, it's scary. And as a parent, you're like, I, they hate themselves. They're doing all these things. Like I have to step in. This is a, this is a big deal. And I'm starting to really push parents to, to turn off that reactive place, um, have it, <laughs> Take a moment, breathe, breathe through it, and then sit there and be like, wow, thank you for sharing with me. That must have been scary for you. Mm-hmm. Walk me through what happened before that happened. You know, you're okay. Let's clean it up. Let's make sure it's clean. You're talking about taking a pause. Taking a pause. Yeah. Taking a pause, giving yourself a minute. And then because if you react and you shame base that feeling, probably unintentionally, they're going to not tell you anymore. They're going to start cutting in places that you don't see. They're going to take it to another place. So no longer is it non, you know, is it just like a self-harm for a coping skill? It could escalate because it's a missed opportunity. Um, So that's cutting, but it's the same with, you know, drugs and alcohol. Yes, it's terrifying when you learn that your child has, your young tween has experimented with drugs. You want to go and take like the world down. Like who would do this to my baby? Who would give this? Right. And my child. Right. 
but I'm like, you got to take a pause. You have a moment right now to be like, well, what was that about? You know, what, what did you feel when you, you know, smoked that? And like all of a sudden, like, how, how did it make, what were you trying to escape? Mm -hmm. And then it's that opportunity for discussion. It's an opportunity for reflection. And then all of a sudden your child doesn't feel alone. They're like, oh, my mom's curious about why. You know, I'll, I talk to parents a lot about this idea that there are very few real emergencies in parenting and that the real emergencies are literally the ones you need 911 or to rush to the emergency room for. And that while there's a lot of scary moments in parenting, um, and these days it feels like even more, that that ability to pause, to breathe, to reflect, okay, why are we here right now? What got us here? It gives you that space to be intentional about your parenting. Yeah. And what I'm hearing you say is that right now more than ever, we we, ha we have to practice being mm -hmm. intentional. And I think for me that reflects to the bigger picture. Not only do we have to practice being intentional with our parenting, I don't think I've ever, well, okay, that's going to sound really dramatic. I was going to say, I don't think I've ever lived in a time. I'm not that old, but <laughs> this is the first time in my life that that need for intentionality is not just so obvious. It's so important. Absolutely. We need to be intentional with everything. Kent Hoffman, obviously, Circle Security, we all, you know, the guru, he once said, and it just resonated in my mind, is that we keep taking the fire extinguisher to the alarm. Mm. And I, it just hit me, and I was like, that is that is what we do. We are, we are so focused on the noise mm -hmm. that we completely forget the room is still on fire. And if we break the alarm, like, we're just going to put a new alarm up. So, right. it, and that, and we do that everywhere. We have become a very behavioral controlling society in schools, in the homes, everything. Yeah. We are, go after the behavior, modify that behavior, punish that behavior. Ooh, that's exactly what I was just thinking. Well, then let's lead you in. Oh, wow. Well. <laughs> uh, yes, with all these coping skills that can be so alarming to parents, you know, and just to Ingrid's point, I think we're like, we've never met, but I like, I think it's we're happening. very simpatico. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was thinking the same thing. What are you trying not to feel? What is happening there? What are you trying not to feel? And what is your escape? So it's either dissociation, right. like staring at the wall for six hours straight. That's what some of my clients do. Substance abuse, sex, uh, you know, anything that is super distracting <laughs> and numbs <laughs> feelings is kind of a lot of times what these um, young people are doing. Um, but as parents, again, trying not to panic <laughs> and trying not to judge and scream, um, but like, what do we need to do next? That's what I always think about. If you're having unprotected sex, we need to get you to the doctor. Let's check you out. Like, what is the need there? And trying to keep this non-shaming, um, not like throwing the hammer down punitive style, mm -hmm. um, like the kid is definitely needing help, definitely needs help. But if you shame them and s take everything away, <laughs> uh, <laughs> they will hide. Yeah, they're just not going to tell you. They're still going to yeah. do it. Mm -hmm. Like th that's not going to change. They're either going to talk to you about the fire. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to include you in that. And that is the optimal place to be because as therapists, mm -hmm we have the privilege already to be in there. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't focus ever on behaviors. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, oh, that's great that he did that. But if he wants to talk about it, that's great. Yeah. We're going to move forward with what we're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I see like parents like trying really hard to create a safe space for their kids. But if that, if there's that constant correction, um, you know, there's, there's course correction we need, like, again, like going to the doctor, if you need to go get checked out. Um, but that constant, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to give you advice. I'm going to do all this, you know, to your point, Ingrid, it's like, if I could just tell parents to try to listen more than they talk sometimes and listen more than they problem solve, uh, that's um, that's what therapists do, mm-hmm. right? But so so to your point, Maggie, and actually, I think uh, for both of you, while as therapists, I think it's really it's it's what we do. You know, people come in, they're in distress, and and because we do this with adults too, how do we slow the train down? How do we talk about how we got here? Like to use the fire analogy, how do we find out why the fire started rather than you know, rushing in the room and slamming off the alarm and then maybe accidentally spilling the can of gasoline in the room, <laughs> right? So now we're in an explosion, which is what happens, I think, sometimes when, for example, we find a kid has had sex very early, unprotected, and we're just like, you are not going out. We take their phones. We, we shut everything down. And in the, the little tiny moment, you know, that's us turning off the alarm. Mm-hmm. But on the rush across the room, we knocked over the gas can because now that kid is completely withdrawn. Hate, you know, like the, the super strong emotions of guilt and shame look like hate and anger. And, you know, I could keep going and yeah. explain all this. And so we know this. And so when people come into our space, we slow it down. We try to find the cause of the fire. And then we work on slowly figuring out, okay, how do we build the infrastructure for you as a human being so that you don't have another fire? Mm -hmm. But parents, I think for two reasons, I think one, are socialized. You know, we we believe we're supposed to draw these super thick, fat, do not cross lines, and that if the lines are crossed, that there are consequences. And if we don't provide consequences, we're not doing good parenting. And I think this is a myth I've been trying to break or bust or whatever you want to say for a really long time. Do kids need parameters and limits? Absolutely. Mm. But when, because that's what helps them to feel safe, right? And when they know what their limits are, then they know how to move forward. They develop well. When those limits are either non-existent or too rigid, what happens is they try to push and push and push and escape or they shrink away, but, you know, they don't, they struggle. So right now, on top of that, we have this other piece of we're all exhausted. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what do you say to a parent who hears all of this but then says, well, I have to do something? You know, what yeah. do they do? Yeah, that's really, it's really, that's the conundrum, right? And what I kind of try to um, put out there to parents is like, where are places that you can find some safe common ground with your kid? Like my whole background goes back to play, you know, everything that we've learned from play and what that does to relationships and what that does um, to, for people's mental health and their restoration and, um, and relief from this long extended stressful situation. And so sometimes I'm like, Hey, can you guys even do like a jigsaw puzzle quietly together for like a little while? Because I know that with these kids that are searching for some kind of reward, 
you know, in whatever, trying to cope. Connection is the way out of that. Yeah. So in the absence of peer connections, because those have gone all wonky during COVID, <laughs> parents are kind of what, what their teen has got. And and that's not, it's kind of anti-development, you know, right. kids are supposed yeah. to be going the other way. But um, I do still see teens, even older teens, juniors, seniors in high school, just missing their parents or missing those, like, can you just go for a walk together? Like, can you convince them to come out of their room? Yeah, or even, you know, um, watch a, watch a movie or watch a television series together that you're like, okay, mm-hmm. Tuesday nights, we're watching this together and like right. get excited about it. Right. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, that's something my mom and I do. And it's a set thing and I enjoy it. You know, it's bringing that, we're just hardwired to connect to be as human beings. That's what we're willing to do. That's, that's our safe haven. Yeah. And so, um, playing basketball, doing things, going outside, stepping out of your own comfort zone. And I think, I I love what you said, Maggie, like these teens are missing their parents. And that's because the parents are just flat out burnt. Mm -hmm. They're working. And something that we, I think we talked earlier on the phone is that there's no transitions anymore. Mm. I'm I'm in my basement working and then I hear my children screaming and I'm walking (laughs) upstairs and I've just had a really hard day. And I'm like, okay, well, here it's gonna. I, ho- I have ten stairs to clear my mind and put on a different hat, <laughs> versus my thirty minute commute home, where I could like kind of process and like turn it off and get in the position to do it. Yeah. And so they have ten steps, right, to get into this different mode. And then, then they're like, I have zero energy to go play basketball. Like you're asking me mm-hmm. to do something that is incredibly physically and emotionally and mentally I'm I'm incapacitated almost right and and that's what they look at me and I'm like really Ingrid you think that that's gonna like you're out of your mind like that is that is unrealistic it's so funny though some of the most successful parents that I've seen have just made like small gestures like we're gonna listen to my kids favorite k-pop band in the car and even though like their teeth might be grinding (laughs) (laughs) like on edge like that teen or tween just feels loved or like I am going to watch every episode of Avatar The Last Airbender because my kid freaking loves it. Maddie's (laughs) Maggie's hitting all the the hot spots. Um, Yeah, show me the YouTube pop it one more time. I'm just so curious. Bring it on. I can't wait. I want to see it. I mean, that's the thing, right? We have to, times like this require that we reach outside of our box, but how do we do that and listen to ourselves? right? Because mm-hmm. it is a balance. So I'll talk to parents about stay up a little late. If you don't have the energy to play basketball or a puzzle, if you can barely get food on the table, then even if you fall asleep at six or seven or eight, set an alarm for 10 and drag your leery, <laughs> weary, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this body into your kid's room, sit on the edge of their bed and just sit there or lay there. Mm -hmm. And eventually what will happen is that human will talk to you because (laughs) that's when our kids, you know, especially the older teenagers, that's when they come alive. Mm -hmm. And because if the pandemic has illustrated anything, it's that connection matters. That's why we're here today because connection matters. And, you know, if you look at all the populations as adults, we get it. We have life experience. We know Two years sucks hard. I miss my friends. I've lost some friends. I've gained some friends, but I will be okay. I have the collective memory of my whole life to know I can do this. 
I'm just at a, you know, we're at a better advantage for that. But our teenagers, this is their time to develop connections, to be like, ooh, I actually don't like that kind of friend. Or, ooh, I really want this kind of friend. Or, I like that sport. I don't like that sport. Right. You know, this is their time for that. And and to your point earlier, many of them, our older ones in particular, did that to a blank screen with just their teacher's face. And no matter how engaging that teacher was, they just had a bunch of letters around the screen. Mm-hmm. And usually a cell phone in on, on one thing and, and <laughs> sometimes an iPad and the other. <laughs> and what are you doing? Well, we're not really learning anything. I'm just drawing. It's like, oh, this isn't connecting. And Mm-mm. I think for me, I, you know, I know education is important. Don't, don't take this the wrong way, but I worried less about that piece. than I was like, this is just not connecting in any way. Right. And then having my heartbreak for the teachers, cause I'm like, and I know they're working their ass off on the other mm-hmm. side of this, mm-hmm. but yeah, just that piece of how do we think outside of the box? Um, and so moving forward, I guess let's, let's talk about this for a minute. Cause I think that this is where you know, this conversation is helpful in grounding, hopefully in grounding people and knowing, okay, I'm not alone in this, mm-hmm. but we are all about our whole society, our whole country, actually, the whole world, world. is sending its kids back to school in a different way right now, right? Yeah. We've just survived. Um, for those of you who don't like it when people count, I'm about to count the number of days <laughs> we've been in a pandemic. Are you ready? 531 oh, days of pandemic. And it's looked different all over the world, right? But here, our kids got, some of our kids got a little chunk of school um, at the start in March. And then many of our public school kids really just did this very asynchronous, like learn at home, drive yourself, your grades aren't going anywhere, learning. Then we went back to school the next year. But it looked like we just described with a, it's for some kids, a tiny little window of reconnecting time. And I noticed during that, that the first month was weird, a little uncomfortable. But what I also noticed, which surprised me, is the every other day thing worked because mm-hmm. it was so intense that then they got to sort of release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had some kids in private schools who did different things, and I, I watched different things happen with them. Like some of our kids who were in school all the time were actually more tired than our public school kids because they were masked up and six feet apart and together but not. Mm. A lot. So, I mean, we've we've got a lot of different pieces moving. But if we think about what we could share with our community, because that's really what I want these conversations to be about. While we are all trying to heal and move forward together, how do we talk collectively about propping each other up, Mm. supporting each other, you know, creating space where your way and my way don't have to be the same, but I have space for the fact that we both love and care for our families and our communities, right? Mm-hmm. And so moving forward as we bring all these kids with all their different experiences back into school, what do we want those kids and their parents to know? Ooh, I mean, that's, that's a big question, right? I think that we recognize the resilience, mm. you know, and we really kind of focus on that strength-based piece, you know, because – because you're going to see a lot of different responses to the material given. I think there's, and we could go into the socioeconomic differences of the pandemic in regards to access to education. Um, We won't, but we could. Um, And then they're all coming back together and they're going to be on this spectrum that is so big. Mm -hmm. 
of mm-hmm. emotional. I mean, social emotional. Let's see that exactly. I mean, they're going to come back and they're not going to know how to react to somebody that, you know, doesn't want to be around them. They don't, the, all of those things have been put on pause. All of yeah, that developmental stuff. It's almost like being, a, I have one, so I'll use this analogy, a soccer player and you know you're you're pretty decent in March of 2020, and then you don't play soccer for 531 days, and you get back on that field, and you think it should all work out okay. Like I know this, yeah, muscle memory, but right. But then you play poorly, and then what happens is you blame yourself. Like mm-hmm. this, I'm failing. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I think of forgiveness. You know, being into a place of you know what understanding, and it's that same response that we're asking parents to do when they catch their kid, you know, using drugs or having sex early is teachers have to also be, wow, this must have been really hard for you. How can I adapt the learning? You know, which is a huge ask. And I think that's really hard. But, you know, I think, you know, to kind of piggyback on what you're saying, Meg, is the education piece, that academic piece is is important. I'm not trying to discount that. But that social emotional piece, um, if you can get them to connect by just being like, wow, this must have been so hard for you. And then all of a sudden they hear that the teacher's saying that and they're like, you can be my person. You get it. Mm-hmm. Even if my parent didn't, you might. And that might change the trajectory of me taking in information that you give me academically. But also, again, I'm getting those protective factors back. Right. And so, you know, as teachers, I would just say, relax, just, just connect. If you just spend the first two weeks just connecting and not being so scared that they're not going to hit these milestones, I think that it will change the the year. You know, mm-hmm. it will change that whole dynamic of being like, okay, this is a safe place. I can go to school. And she gets me. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, exactly. right? Like this idea that if we get the energy from the adults around us that we can do hard stuff, then guess what? We're going to do hard stuff. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll dig in. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to the other piece we talked about in terms of then if we struggle, if the focus is only on the struggle and not on what got you here and how do we talk about that, and it's harder to get back to that place of, okay, that was hard and that was scary and, ooh, let's not do that again. But, hey, don't forget, we can do hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think, you know, Meg, you and I were talking about this yesterday, but there is like a certain doom and gloom about the academic loss um, for kids. And I'm sure it will be documented. I'm sure it's going to happen. But some people have said, this is going to be a lost generation. Like they will never recover from this. And I don't think that's true. What about all the children who survived World War II? Right. What what do we say about them or (laughs) any of these other experiences? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, my kids, you know, fractions, eh, it's not going so well. You know, like those are hard things to learn over the internet. Um, But uh, it's going to come. It's going to come. And I love the focus on just like the confidence in the child's resilience that like, okay, everyone's doing the best that they can. Our generation has not navigated this before. And, um, you know, one quote, I don't even know where it comes from, but it's just, we're all just walking each other home. Yeah. And I love that one. And I think about how do we walk these kids home? How do we walk ourselves home (laughs) in this? Because, again, to Meg's point, too, earlier, everybody's struggled with this. Like, nobody has been untouched, unscathed by the coronavirus pandemic. So how how do we give each other the grace and even, like, help our kids see that, that there's going to be a lot of people who disagree, masks or not, or whatever. Um, It's, 
ugh, there's opinions everywhere. But how do we help our kids see like, okay, everybody's trying the best that they can. We're going to send them a deep breath, give one to ourselves and try to keep going. Right. Right. I think that's really important. It's, it's, I mean, we know that now, right? There are opinions everywhere, but everyone's affected. And if that can be our focus, we've all been impacted. How do we, I love that vision. How do we walk each other home? It doesn't matter. Uh, Brene Brown talks about this, how you used to, you know, be able to kind of sit on the front porch or be out there mowing your lawn and chat with your neighbor. And we didn't put political signs on our lawn. We, we, we allowed for differences. Um, the focus was on the connection and the well-being. How do we bring it back to that? I feel like that's a, a really important piece. Can we talk a little bit, because I, I feel like we'd be remiss if we don't bring this up. Statistically speaking, or just observationally based, when we see increased anxiety and depression in any group or community, we're more likely to see you know, increased suicidal ideation. And so I also think that, you know, and I, I imagine people listening to us talking today, and I, I can kind of hear the different responses and some people being like, well, that's not my kid. Okay, I get that as therapists, we, you know, it's it's like the the pediatrician who um, has a really strong reaction when someone's like, "I'd like to wait on that vaccine because they've seen that kid for whom waiting on that vaccine meant, you know, horrible things." And I get as therapists that we see the kids who are usually really struggling. And so I, I say that because I want people, as they're listening, to understand we get that we are talking about the kids who, you know are coming mm -hmm. to our offices, calling our offices. But I think unlike other times, we're also constantly thinking about all the kids who aren't getting in because, as we've said, this pandemic affects everyone. Right. Right. And so as, as they come together, one of the things that's on my mind is if going back to school proves stressful at any age, are we expecting to see more suicidal ideation? And what do we want parents and caregivers and teachers to know about that? I, again, I'm like, oh, who's going first? <laughs> we have conversations as, as therapists about suicide all the time. Right. We screen it the first day we see you. Mm -hmm. And we create an atmosphere that is very open to the conversation of suicide. We, there's no shame. There's no guilt. It's, it's a natural conversation to have. And parents get very like, oh, why would you even bring it up? We haven't, we haven't talked about it. Why are you talking about it? And it's like, well, I talk about it with everybody. So it's not weird for me. And the minute, you know, that parent leaves and the kid's like, oh gosh, yeah, you know what? I don't think about, I don't think about dying. It's just that I don't really want to live. Right. And you're like, let's talk about that. And they're like, you, it's okay. You're like, mm -hmm. yeah, of course it is. Because I get it. This is hard. And if you don't know, you know, where you're going to be in a year or college and it just seems so much, I get where you're at. You know, you don't want to hurt yourself. You don't want to die. It's just if you went to sleep and never woke up, that's not that bad for you. Mm -hmm. And and then that conversation evolves because we have created, you know, I don't want to get too big on a soapbox, but we've created a taboo suicide conversation. And we have taken away the ability to to be in a moment that is very um, 
you know, vulnerable for that child. And we get scared. And I've seen this with professionals too. They get scared and they start checking boxes. How are you going to hurt yourself? Da, 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 da. And we miss the opportunity for a narrative. Right. We miss the opportunity to allow the space to be like, well, gosh, when's the first time you had that thought? Walk me through what that felt like to actually think about that. That is powerful stuff. And, you know, I, I mentioned um, in the what we wrote is that I try to teach, I don't know if you guys know about Joyner's theory of interpersonal um, suicide. And it's all, it's very simple. It's a simple way to explain where somebody might get. And basically, you know, three circles leading together. One being a thwarted sense of belonging, burdensomeness, and fear of death or means of death, Right. And so if you have some, you know, if you have that, you, you don't feel like you belong, you can, you're in that classroom and you see all these other kids and they like look at each other with smiling eyes because they're wearing a mask <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, and they just, you're like, I, I don't get it. I, I just don't, I want to belong. I want to fit in. I just, I just don't. Mm -hmm. And then you move into that burdensomeness where, you know, I know that me using drugs just puts so much pressure on my mom and it would just be easier if I wasn't here. Right. It becomes weighty. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just, it's not that, you know, it's just that her life would be better if I wasn't here. Right. So that burdensomeness is big. And then say they experiment with, um, you know, non-suicidal self-injury. So they're cutting, but all of a sudden they cut too deep and they're like, eh, mm -hmm. that's not a big deal. So now we've moved into more of an attempt and then that fear of death goes away. But if we're not talking about those other two things, like if we're not checking in and being like, how did you feel? Like, did you belong? Like, did you feel like you were an outcast in that room? And they're like, yeah. How'd you know that? And you know the kid. Yeah, we focus a lot on, um, you know, you got this, you can do this, you know, like like push through. There's There's been a, over the years, that's, that's especially with this population, our tweens to teen, that transition, we focus a lot on, you know, yeah, it's hard. You've got this. You can do this. Um, and while, you know, we did just talk about we can do hard things, I think one of the accidental um, losses of that framework is, yeah, you can do this, but it can suck at the same time. I talk to people mm -hmm. a lot about this. You get to have, you get to understand why something's happening and even know that it shouldn't be happening and say, and it sucks. Mm-hmm. Those two things can exist at the same time. This idea that, you know, Maggie's heard me talk about this before. It's 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 okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. It needs to be. And right now, more than ever, from my perspective, if we can be focusing on that, to more to the point when we were talking about academics, like this idea that we connection is what will help our kids survive and thrive mm -hmm. this next piece. They have to know they're connected and we're wearing masks. So how do we do that? We we can use our eyes, right? I've learned to smile very deeply so that it's reflected in my eyes. But do we also have to be able to talk about it out loud in a way that society has kind of skirted around before? Mm -hmm. And I think the hardest thing for parents is, of course, when your child says that they've had thoughts of ending their life, like, how do you keep your poker face? You know, as a parent, <laughs> like, well, I never had one, but <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, I mean, as therapists, like, that's not our kid, and so we can kind of keep yeah. our cool <laughs> and like go into this connected conversation. And I think that's why the therapeutic relationship is so cool. Like, 
if we can give a kid that, like that's an amazing honor that we have in our role. Um, but for these poor parents, I really, I, I'm sending them a deep breath too. Like um, I love your points, Ingrid, about trying to make it a safe topic to talk about because um, that's that's just what we need. So if you're a parent and your kid is struggling with this, they need to be talking to somebody, you know. And for whatever reason, if it can't if it can't be you, um, like oh, I've seen amazing work even done by pediatricians. Uh, one of my clients came in and said, yeah, I actually talked to my pediatrician about it, you know, because parents are out of the room usually when the kid's 13 and up. And um, and she said, my doctor just made me put the suicide hotline right in my phone right there. Like she wouldn't uh, let me leave without doing that. And I was like, dang, that's good. Mm-hmm. Dang, that's good. So I do want to highlight for parents, too, like if you can't get into mental services right away, don't forget about your pediatrician. They can be an amazing resource for you. And they're probably asking your kid about suicide and anxiety and depression anyway. A lot of them are doing regular screenings at this point. Um, But get that appointment. That might be an easier one to get Mm -hmm. um, than than with a therapist who has 20 people on their wait list. There are also a lot of clinics now will have a nurse practitioner who's uh, trained, Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, as a, what do they call them, a psychiatric Mm -hmm. nurse practitioner. And... um, the nice thing about meeting, although with pediatricians, they're going to spend a little bit more time with you than your adult, you know, doctor. But those nurses often have longer pa- uh, patient appointment times yeah. and that specialty, tr- specialty training. So that's a great point. I was thinking there's, you know, as this pandemic has gone on and as a therapist that works with kids and my wait list is crazy because I just... I don't know if there's a lot of us out there anymore that are working with the littles. I yeah. just, and the teens, I feel like we're kind of a dying breed. I don't know if it's the stress of it or the caseload, but um, I mean, I don't know what you're seeing, but mm-hmm. there's a ton. And um, just to kind of go off on what we can give somebody right now, right? Like right. what is a tool we can give you right now? Um, I've, I've created, I've worked really hard on trying to come up with something because I get, I have my, you know, my, my client who is the child or teenager. And then I have these moms in the weight room that are just like, can you give me 10 minutes? Can you give me 20 minutes and just kind of give me some tools right now? I need something. And they're not clinical, you know? And I'm like, I don't have enough time to do it. Your child, I I actually have to spend every minute I can with this kiddo. And so um, I was telling you, Meg, I started um, basically a group called the Worried Mom. And the whole goal is to have a support group for anxious moms that are non-clinical, you know, but that I would be able to provide a safe space and it's all online, Mm. um, you know, but just to give them, okay, I'm going to teach you grounding techniques. I'm going to teach you some motivational interviewing ways to use reflective, you know, reflective listening. And let's work on creating a space and holding space and teaching them just these really basic, I mean, you can get this stuff online, but that's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's always trying to find another way to get this information out. Right. And so that's, that was, that's my goal Yeah, is to, to provide that for the community. So you'll be able to give all that information out when it's ready. If, if you have yeah, we, you know, we other will. moms and stuff, but it, it, I think as therapists, we have to kind of be almost like entrepreneurs on how to find different ways <laughs> to connect with people on a larger scale because, oh my gosh, there's just not enough time to piggyback on our clients, on our kids' mm-hmm. appointments and be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to teach you about the art of connection. Well, I, that's a kind of a big thing. 
Right. I right. love it. I mean, you think about like that really old little poem about like the starfish washing up on the beach and we're pitching him back into the sea one at a time, but the beach is full. The beach <laughs> is full. So there's a lot of work to be done. But I, I love that idea of the worried moms group, just giving them a resource to mm-hmm. connect together and to normalize how hard this is to parent teenagers in a pandemic. That's a really big deal. So I want to join. <laughs> Sounds amazing. I will both be there. And then that idea, which I think piggybacks off of the kind of how do we be well together is that a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff that happens in therapy, it's not privileged. I mean, the the content of what we as a client bring in is, but, um, but the tools, being healthy, connected, grounded, um, centered, whatever the word you want to use, human beings, there's a lot of tools out there. And, and how do we start talking about them? And, and is that only really possible if as a culture, we start to really focus on, oh, our collective well-being matters. Um, so kind of on that note, before we wrap up any, like a, a nugget, if you could have people know one thing, what would it be? Oh gosh! That's no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> I know, Maggie. You go first, and I'll just what have I said and before? I'll do some research over here. I shared that. all my nuggets. <laughs> um, okay, parting nugget, parent. You're amazing. Sending you love. Sending you peace. You're doing a great job. You're listening to a podcast on parenting a teen in a pandemic, so you get a dang gold star tonight, and I'm really proud of you. Yeah. Bust yeah. out the puzzle. I like listen that. to some K-pop. You got this. <laughs> yes, um, I will. I will. Thank you. That was gorgeous. Um, <laughs> Self compassion, reflection. Um, gosh, and you know what? Sometimes your kid is an asshole. That's okay. <laughs> um, a recognized thought aren't doing thoughts, right? So you can think it. It doesn't mean that you are a bad mom or dad. You, you just have to kind of allow yourself to be like. Okay. All right. Yeah. That. Um. I didn't teach them that. <laughs> I don't respect that. That's not what I'm trying to portray. But you know what? At the end of the day, you got this. And we're all struggling. And you know, even as therapist moms, right? We are struggling. So you're not alone. Um. I remember the one like big nugget from Kent Hoffman again, my favorite human being. He's listening. Hi. Um, 30%, right? 30% is when you have to nail it on the head as a parent. That's it. 30%. And so really what you're thinking is you want that kid to, you know, even if you're not hitting bullseye and nailing it every time, if 30% you are, they're like, oh, you know what? Mm-hmm. Mom doesn't really know what she's doing right now, but she gets it most of the time. So that's okay. Right? So that's okay. 30%. That's it. That's oh. a great that's a great reminder. I have to admit I gave my nugget away earlier, so I'll just reiterate it, which is that, you know, just a reminder that there really are very few true emergencies and while we're surviving this, that's going to be a piece from my perspective that that really holds it together when we can create that space for that pause and be super intentional about what we do and how we connect. We're not being bad parents by not immediately grounding, taking phones away, you know, cutting off contact with friends. We're being really great intentional parents when we pause and say, I don't know what to do and maybe get a little help or, or grab a friend. And the piece I'd like to leave us with is that right now, 
it is, in fact, hard to find a therapist. And this isn't a Spokane problem. It's not a Spokane County or Washington or even a United States problem. When I did research for our conversation today, one of the things that I found was that this is happening in Asia. This is a global thing right now. And, you know, the upside, as I said before, is that we are all aware that our mental health matters. It's mental health care, right? We are healthcare providers in every sense of the word. We always have been, but I think now more than ever, that's evident. But there was a shortage of health, mental health care providers before the pandemic. And while we've done everything, a lot of us, group practices have done everything we can to bring more people on. It's going to take time for this to catch up. So right now, if you are listening to this and you're thinking, wow, I really should find someone to talk to for myself or someone else, or, or you've been trying, keep trying. And it, it's not necessarily going to feel great to know that this is what we have to do. But if you can get on wait lists, get on wait lists. If people are telling you their wait lists are closed, make a list. Call back in four to six weeks. We have sudden cancellations, people who move or drop out. We have these unexpected openings. Um, find a place that does gap scheduling where you can kind of fit yourself in if you have a flexible schedule. But we are here and if we're not responding to your calls fast enough, if we're telling you we don't have space right now, it isn't about you. It's about the fact that this is a pandemic and we got a lot of people to take care of, but we want you to be reaching out and we do not mind. And yes, I'm speaking for all of Spokane County right now, so I'm sorry for anyone for who this isn't true, but I think I speak for us, at least in this room, when I say we don't mind if you call us again and again. Um, you know, they're hard conversations to have, but that's our job. And we're going to do everything we can to help you get seen, find someone to talk to, and and care for yourself and others. Absolutely. So thank you, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Great conversation yeah. today. Yay. Thanks once again to Meg, to Connor Bacon, as always, to Brennan Pointer for some equipment help in the clutch. And of course, Maggie Rowe and Ingrid Price for coming with their expertise, but also their heart. It makes me feel so much better knowing we have people like this in our community helping kids and parents navigate this just unbelievably brutal time. Again, links to the other episode in the show notes and the article Meg wrote in November. I think it's still useful today. All right, that's it for us. Have a good week. Bye.